Good morning. Good morning. I got my Bible. <laughs> How are you? Very good. Fantastic, right, Lewis? All right. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We have entered into this chapter now. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. So you can turn there in your Bibles, in your copy of the Word of God. If you don't have a Bible, I would invite you to pick up one of those blue Bibles on the floor. You can use that to reference. If you flip that open to page 940, that'll bring you to this particular section of God's Word this morning. Well, you know that last week, if you were here, I told you we should have actually done Romans chapter 3, verse 1 through 8 last week, but I had trouble with this passage, a lot of trouble. So I ended up preaching another message and took another week working through this, this section. It is one of the most, according to many Bible scholars and those who teach the Word of God, it's one of the most difficult paragraphs in Romans to understand, and most would agree with that. The problem is what they don't agree on is how to understand it (laughs) or interpret it. John Piper, a man I, you might be familiar with him, maybe not, but I admire him and respect him as a teacher of God's word, as a preacher, as a shepherd. He said concerning this section of Romans, my brain almost broke trying to understand the complexity of that paragraph. That's what he said. His brain almost broke. Well, I think mine did. I think mine did a couple weeks ago, so I had to take a week off for it to heal and I'm recovering well now. So I've done my best to try to make some sense of it, and and maybe you'll walk out of here and say, I don't understand what the big deal was, because what I'm going to try to do is remove all the difficulties, and I'm not going to spend you know hours with you this morning, obviously, uh, exp- exposing you to all those things that are strange or hard to figure out in this text, but I'm going to do my best. And just acknowledge up front that Christians over the years have understood and taught this particular section in various ways. So... There are different ways to get at this passage. Also, I'm going to do something different today. I'm going to actually read from the New American Standard Bible. We typically use the English Standard Version, the ESV, but I'm going to use the New American Standard Bible for the most of it because I think it better represents in its translation the original Greek language that Romans chapter 1, well, the entire book of Romans, was written in. Okay? So if you're following along in the English Standard Version or one of those blue Bibles, then it's not going to line up exactly, but it's, it's fairly close. And I'll put everything up on the screen so you can see what I'm referring to. And if you have questions about Bible translations or what all that means and how do I know which ones are good and which ones aren't, or I would, we would love to talk to you about that more. But for right now, I just wanted to point that out. All right, let me give you some context. That means what's going on. Where, where, where are we in the book of Romans? So that it'll make more sense, I think, when we look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, as I'm sure you're aware, follows chapters 1 and 2. Hey, so that's an observation, right? All right, very good. And in these chapters, chapters 1 and 2, if you've been with us, you know that Paul has been asserting that all of humanity, I mean, I say this almost every week, all of humanity is guilty before God. That's what he's been asserting in the chapters 1 and 2. And by that he means Jew and Gentile. Jew and Gentile. And that when it comes to God's judgment and his salvation... 
there are no real distinctions between Jew and Gentile. Did you hear what I just said? When it comes to God's judgment and His salvation, Paul is saying there are no real distinctions between the Jew and the Gentile. In other words, the Jew had no advantage concerning these things even though he thought he did. Even though he thought he did. He thought he did have an advantage concerning these things, the wrath of God and the salvation of God. Many Jews wrongly believed that they would be exempt from God's wrath. Just flat out exempt. They would not experience it. And that being a Jew or being circumcised actually guaranteed their salvation. And Paul challenges strongly that idea, especially in chapter 2. Now listen, what Paul does not say or teach, he does not say or teach this, is that there are no distinctions at all between Jew and Gentile. He's not teaching that. He's not saying there are no distinctions. He's also not saying that the Jew had no advantage over the rest of the world. He's not saying that. But it is possible that the readers of Romans, after reading chapters 1 and 2, might have understood understood it that way, that that's what Paul was saying. And if the Jews understood it that way, they would have objected strongly to the idea that the Jew had absolutely no advantage over the rest of the world, or that there were no distinctions between the Jew and Gentile. So before Paul goes further into his gospel message, he, he desires, I think, to set the record straight. To set the record straight, if you will. That's what I've titled the sermon today. To clear up or to speak to any misunderstandings and objections that someone might have concerning his teachings. So how does he do that? How does he go about that? Addressing these possible misunderstandings or objections. Well, as he does in other places in the letter, as we read through the book of Romans, you'll see this more and more, he poses certain questions or objections to himself. He raises them. He asks himself questions or he raises an objection and then he answers that question or deals with that objection so that his views or his teachings become more crystal clear. So he clears up any misconceptions. With that... I'm going to read the text in the New American Standard Version, and then we'll go back through it in a little more detail, okay? With me so far? Excellent. Romans chapter 3, beginning in in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to His glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, 
Let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. A lot there. There's a lot there. So this morning, if you look into your outline, you'll see this little sentence here kind of describing where we're going. We're going to simply discover three truths that come out of Paul's attempt to address possible misunderstandings and objections concerning his teachings. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Those uh, three truths that come out of this section are, one, being a Jew does have advantages. Two, the unbelief of the Jews cannot cancel out God's faithfulness, cannot make it null and void. And number three, God would not, would not be unjust to inflict his wrath on the Jews. So, let's get through this here. Being a Jew does have advantages. That's the first point. So go, you can look back at the text or it'll pop up because I'm going to use the New American Standard. Paul says in verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? So he's posing these questions to himself and he's going to answer them. Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, after what Paul said, listen, this is chapter 3. It follows the end of chapter 2. After what Paul just got through saying at the end of chapter 2 concerning Jewish circumcision. And we covered that in detail two weeks ago. So I'm not going to do that this morning. But after what he just got through saying, the readers of Romans might have thought that what Paul was teaching is that there is absolutely no benefit then to being a Jew. Absolutely no benefit which they would have had a problem with. They would have object, objected to that. Uh, pastor David, the teaching pastor of Foothill Bible Church, who we came from, when he did this sermon, this was a quote of his, so I took it from there, and I thought it was good. It says, The particular assault upon circumcision, that assault came through Apostle Paul. He assaulted, in a sense, circumcision. The particular assault upon circumcision was perhaps most hurtful, because this was the essence of Judaism, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 17, which separated the nation from the surrounding pagans, the other Gentiles, the Gentiles of the world. This is what made them distinct in some sense. By appearing to attack circumcision, Paul was appearing to attack all that it meant to be Jewish. Remember, the Apostle Paul is a Jew, but... Maybe at this point they might think he's betraying the Jews, turning against them on some level. But it was not Paul's intention, beloved, to attack all that it meant to be Jewish. It was not. But rather to explain that the Jewish ceremony or rite, R-I-T-E, of circumcision could not save the Jew or guarantee them salvation. That was, that was the emphasis. That was the concept. But someone could have certainly felt otherwise about what Paul was teaching, about what he was saying and expressing. So Paul states clearly that there are certainly advantages for the Jew. There are. And he begins by pointing out that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Okay, so what is that? The oracles of God. Well, the word oracles could simply be understood as sayings, sayings, or words, okay? Sayings or words. So you could say the Jews were entrusted with the very sayings or words of God. And these words, we know, were written down 
kept, preserved, and protected by the Jewish people in a book that we refer to as the Old Testament. The Old Testament. And this truly was an advantage the Jews had over all the other nations because God chose to entrust His words to these people alone. To these people alone. He did not give His words to any other nation or to any other people. He gave it to the Jews. Now, one of the things that made this advantage so significant so incredible would be the fact that through these oracles of God, through these sayings, through these words, the Jews were given the hope and the promise of the Messiah and Savior. The Messiah and Savior. Paul refers to these words of God in 2 Timothy 3.15 when he says this about the sacred writings that are able to make one wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. These oracles of God were designed to not only make a promise of the coming Messiah and Savior, but to lead the people to a point where they would embrace that Messiah and Savior to be saved. So they had a great advantage. But the sad reality is, is that advantage was not realized for many Jews. We know this historically. Because they did not believe in or place their faith in the Messiah when He came to earth in fulfillment of the very promise that God had made to the Jews, a promise that was contained in the oracles that He gave to His people. As Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39-40, through 40, maybe you'll remember this, He says to the Jews, You search the Scriptures, the Holy writings, the oracles of God, you search these because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is them that bear witness about me. They testify to me. They are the promise of me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Sad, sad words in the Gospel of John. So in bringing up this advantage, Paul must now deal with another issue, and that issue is Jewish unbelief. Jewish unbelief. For the most part, the nation of Israel had refused and rejected the Messiah. So, does that mean that God is through with them? Does it mean that? And consequently, that all the other special promises that God made to the nation of Israel and are connected with the Messiah were all of those now null and void. See, that's an important question. And that brings me to the second point. You need to know the answer to this question. The unbelief of the Jews cannot cancel out God's faithfulness. Specifically, his faithfulness to his promises. Look back. Well, here comes the next section of the text because you probably don't have a New American Standard Bible, but you can look at whatever version you have. It's very close. Romans chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. Paul then, after he just expresses the advantage that the Jews have in the fact that they were entrusted with the very oracles of God, the very oracles of God that make the promise and hope of the Messiah and Savior, but they didn't believe it. Paul says in verse 3, What then? 
If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Paul says, may it never be. May it never be is Paul's way of saying that would be absolutely impossible. Don't even think such a thing. What would be impossible? That the Jews' failure to embrace Jesus as the Messiah, promised by God in his oracles, would somehow nullify or cancel out the faithfulness of God in keeping the promises that he had made to the nation of Israel. That's what's impossible. Some commentators suggest that Paul used the word some in his statement, if some did not believe, that he chose some because he did not want to be overly offensive. He's tactful when he speaks. He's, he's careful how he addresses people. So he didn't want to be overly offensive, so he just used the word some because the reality is most, most did not believe. That's the reality. It remains the reality. Most Jews have not, throughout history, embraced their Messiah. But guess what? Even so, it cannot nullify the faithfulness of God. Now, Paul will address the issue. Listen, he will address this issue in more detail of Israel's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness to the nation later on in the book of Romans, specifically chapters 9 through 11. So if you're interested in figuring this out or looking at that, go home and read chapters 9 through 11. We'll get there some day in the future. We will get to that section of Scripture, and I'm looking forward to it because it is incredible when you find out, when you start to understand God's plan for the world, for the nations, for Israel. And it starts to actually make sense then of even what's going on in our world today and has been going on for some time and, and, even, and even why so much attention is drawn to this little piece of land in the Middle East. And a lot of that we can, we can start to understand as we get to chapters 9 through 11 of, of, of Romans. But let me just point this out. In chapter 10, after Paul describes Israel's rejection of the gospel, their rejection of Jesus Christ, after he... he he lays that out. They have rejected their Messiah. This stiff-necked, disobedient people. It was read about in the Scriptures this morning. As Stephen, Stephen was preaching to the Jews. You stiff-necked, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Then they kill him. <laughs> but when Paul explains that in chapter 10, after he's finished, at the beginning of chapter 11, verse 1, he says this, I ask then, has God rejected His people? You know what he says? By no means. Same phrase. Same phrase that's here in Romans chapter 3. He'll use this phrase several times in the book of Romans. By no means. Absolutely not. Don't even think that for a second. They've rejected him. But he has not rejected them. He still is working out his plan for this nation. Even though Israel had been disobedient people, God remains faithful and will ultimately fulfill all of His promises that He made to this nation specifically. Now, after Paul says, may it never be, okay, back to chapter Romans chapter 3 and verse 4, after he says that, then he says this, rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. 
as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. It starts to get a little more tricky here. So Paul is still responding to the idea that Jewish unbelief could nullify the faithfulness of God. And he says, no way. That can't be. And we must resist any suggestions at all that God would be unfaithful. Rather, he says this, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, the precise meaning of this assertion by Paul is not clear. It simply isn't. It could simply mean that every person, even if every person, every single one, proved to be unreliable or faithless, right? Because Paul says, hey, some, there's some who did not believe, or there, will the some of some's unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? Absolutely not. But even if every single Jew, every single person were to be faithless or unreliable, God would still remain reliable and faithless. It could, it could simply mean that. Or not faithless, faithful, forgive me. Or, according to another pastor that I greatly respect, his name is John MacArthur, so some of you are familiar with him. When he looked at this sermon, he says he believes it means this. I like this. If every single person in the world were to say that God is not true, he's still true. If every man in the world speaks evil about God, if every man in the world says God doesn't keep his word, God is still true. God is true if every man in the world says he's not true. The integrity of God must be upheld. That's what's at stake here by questioning whether God would continue to be faithful. Then Paul, I think that that makes sense. And Paul adds a quote from Psalm 51.4 here after he says that. It's a quote. He's quoting from the Scripture, as it is written. So when he says, as it is written... He's referring back to the Old Testament writings, to the sacred writings, to the oracles of God, as is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So he's taking this out of Psalm 51. This quote is from a psalm of David, King David, concerning his sin with Bathsheba. With Bathsheba. He had an affair with her. Ended up having her husband whacked, killed in the line of duty, in the military service, trying to cover up his sin. It was a a great stain upon the king. And his acknowledgement in this passage, or in this psalm, that God's judgment of him, it was severe, was right and justified. It was right and justified. And further, if someone did question or judge God or question his character... God will always overcome their judgment and be vindicated in the end. He'll always be found to be true and right. The reason for Paul quoting this passage is heavily debated among Bible scholars. Again, just one of those, you get to it and they all kind of take a little bit of a different angle. But I'm going to refer back again to John MacArthur. I found him to be helpful and it made sense to me. He suggests that Paul chose this psalm quoted from it, because King David, who, by the way, was held in very high esteem among the Jews. Okay, This was the man, King David. This was the Jew. He was also, though, a person who upheld the righteous character of God rather than impugn him, 
criticize him, attack him, even though he had suffered greatly under God's judgment. And the point being is that God's character must never be questioned no matter the circumstances because God always does that which is right. Therefore, no one should entertain the idea that God would ever be unfaithful to the Jew even if the Jews had acted so unfaithfully towards him. So I think that's right. I think, I think it is. Now moving on to the next point, and this gets a little more complicated and hard to understand, but Paul now seems to be dealing here in verse 5, beginning in verse 5, with an objection, an objection that he has either heard before from the Jews due to his gospel preaching ministry. Okay, so by that I mean he goes into the synagogues, he preaches the gospel to the Jewish people, and some believe, but many don't, and some object to his teaching. And so maybe this is an objection that he's heard before in lines with his gospel preaching ministry. Or it could even be one that he anticipates, an objection that he anticipates based on what he has said in verses 3 and 4 about God's faithfulness and the Jews' unbelief. Okay, you ready? Here's how it kind of goes. The objection goes something like this. And you're gonna, maybe you'll be like, what? And it is what? It is a little crazy. If the unrighteousness of unbelieving Jews demonstrates or serves to show or brings out the righteousness of God more because His faithfulness looks even better against the backdrop, the ugly backdrop of their unfaithfulness. So you have the black backdrop of the Jewish unbelief against God's brilliant and beautiful faithfulness, even though they're not believing. If that is the case, if their unfaithfulness serves in some way to bring out and make God look good, (laughs) then is God wrong to inflict wrath on them? Is He wrong since their actions ultimately make God look better? when his unfaithfulness is contrasted with their, or his faithfulness is contrasted with their unfaithfulness or their unbelief. That's the argument. That's the idea, I believe, going on here. That's the objection now that Paul needs to deal with. Kind of crazy. So, point three is this. We'll see it. God would not be unjust to inflict his wrath upon the Jews. Remember, he keeps, he keeps arguing from chapter two. The wrath of God is coming upon you. You guys think you're going to escape it? You are in this way no different than the Gentiles. You have no advantage over them. God will punish sin. It doesn't matter if it's Jewish sin or Gentile sin. He will punish it. By that I mean His wrath will be poured out on it. So He says in Romans chapter 3, verse 5, here it is, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, What shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous? Is He? That that expects a no answer. He's expecting a no answer. 
He says, I am speaking in human terms. May it never be. There it is again. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? So here we go. Paul says, I am speaking in human terms. That's strange. Why does he say that? It's, it's a way of he's apologizing in a sense for even suggesting this idea. But he says, I'm just using human reasoning. I'm using human reasoning. This is human thinking here. This is messed up, but this is the argument. Of course God is not unrighteous to inflict wrath upon you, even if your sin does serve to demonstrate or bring out His righteousness in some way. Of course He's not. And then he goes on, let me ask you this. If He is unrighteous to do so, to inflict wrath on you, then how in the world will He judge the world? How will God judge the world? If God is not just or righteous, then He cannot be the judge of the world. And if He cannot be the judge of the world, then He is absolutely not God. God can and will inflict wrath on the unbelieving Jew for their sins, and that will in no way Make God unrighteous or unfaithful. Paul goes at this issue again in, in verse 7. And I think the NIV is helpful here in its translation of verse 7. So now I'm going to flip to the NIV. Because I think what Paul is doing here is he's expressing the objection now right out of the Jew's mouth in another way. So in Romans chapter 3, verse 7, the NIV puts it this way. Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases His glory, <laughs> why am I still condemned as a sinner? Same twisted idea. But basically the person is saying, listen, if by contrast to my lie, the truthfulness of God stands out and His glory is increased, then haven't I done a good thing? <laughs> and if I have done a good thing, then why in the world would I still be condemned or judged as a sinner? Now, I think verse 8 and again, this is debated among Bible scholars, but I think verse 8 is Paul's reply to all of this nonsense. He really is just going to set the record straight. Paul says, now, back to the NASB, Romans chapter 3, verse 8, New America Standard Bible. And why not say? As we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, why not say this? Just let us do evil that good may come. Why not say that? Their condemnation is just. I believe Paul is saying this. Listen, if, if that is the conclusion you have somehow drawn from my teaching concerning your unbelief in God's faithfulness, then why not take the next logical step to what you're saying and say what some have slanderously reported that we have said, that I have said. That is that you should sin all the more because good will result from it. God will be glorified. 
Now that's interesting, beloved, because in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he, he mentions, I've been slan- it's been slanderously reported that that's exactly what we say. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he does take up this issue. Different context, but he takes it up. He says, what shall we say then? If we're, he's making the argument in Romans 5, we're saved by grace and where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. There's more sin. Grace floods that sin. It overcomes that sin. So based on that, based on that teaching, he has to probably deal with these, another, again, objectors or, or this false idea, drawing the wrong conclusions. He says, what shall we say then in Romans chapter 6? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Is that, is that what you think I'm saying? That's crazy talk. Well, let's sin away, because if we sin away, then more grace is poured out on us and we actually make God look good. And he says to that, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And, and then he makes very strong reasoning arguments there in Romans chapter 6. Back to Romans, Romans 3. Paul says, Paul says to all this, you know what my conclusion is to all this? Any man who says a thing like that, says a thing like what? What they just said, that somehow our sin makes God look better, therefore why should we be condemned? Anything who says a thing like that truly deserves to be condemned by God. Their condemnation is absolutely just. That's it. See? See how easy that was? And that only took 40 hours. Because I cut all the other stuff away. So... Let me just make some concluding remarks. Listen, the Jews had the oracles of God, a great advantage, right? We regularly in our country, or I do, or we talk about the fact that in this country, we are blessed to have access to the complete and final revelation of all of God's oracles. We have the Bible. There's still places in the world where they don't, they've never seen the Bible, they don't have access to it, or it's even den- they're denied access to it. They're not allowed to have it. Beloved, we have it. We've been given it by the grace of God, right? That's a great advantage, isn't it? Don't you think? But it's no advantage at all if you don't believe it. It's no advantage in the end. We have to believe what God has said. We have to believe the promises. We have to believe in the Messiah. Christ, Jesus the Lord, that those oracles point to, speak about, magnify, and glorify. No advantage if we don't believe it. Another conclusion I would draw from this is men in their sin and unbelief, and when I say men, I mean mankind, men, women, everyone, in their sin and unbelief cannot frustrate or overturn or upset the plans of God. Cannot. They may be unfaithful, but God remains faithful. We dare not question His faithfulness. Attack His integrity. Even if it looks like He's not being faithful, beloved, we're wrong. We got it wrong. We're not seeing something. We don't see all His facts. He is faithful. He will do everything He has promised to do. 
And last, no one, no one, both Jew and Gentile, hear me now, no one will escape the wrath of God unless they have a personal saving relationship with the Son of God, Jesus Christ the Lord, which Paul's going to get to in chapter 3. He's going to get to that. No one. That's what he has to make clear to them. No Jew, Gentile, you can't escape it. It's inescapable unless you've been rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ. But I wonder how many think I don't wonder. I I know I've talked to people and I see how many people think or reason in twisted ways and somehow they've wiggled out, they think, from under the wrath of God. Even though they don't follow Jesus Christ. They think they won't experience it. They think it won't happen to them. Somehow they have an exemption. But they don't. They don't. Listen, I was talking to a dear brother, this last week, and I said, how are you doing? And he said, I'm doing fantastic, right? And I thought, oh, that's, that's good, that's good, I like that, fantastic. It took me back a little bit, but I was glad to hear it. And then I said, you know, it's always, it's always good, and then he began to share with me good news, okay? And he thinks, that maybe that's why I said I was fantastic, I'm just really having a good week. I said, it's always good to hear good news in a Christian's life. But then he said something really true. He said, you know what? Even when it's bad, it's good. Even when it's bad, it's good. So that's a Christian perspective. What does that mean? It it means this for the Christian, even when things are falling apart, they are not under the wrath of God and never will be. Do you see what I'm saying? They will never, ever experience the condemnation of God. Even when everything's a mess. It's still good with the Christian. But let me flip the tables for the non-Christian, for the one who does not have faith, confidence, hope, trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior, for the one who is not a follower of Christ. Then, even when everything is good in your life, it's still bad. It's still bad, ultimately. Because you remain under the very wrath of God. And the only thing that keeps you from experiencing that is the fact that you are still alive. And you have no control over how long you live. God does. And when He flips that switch, if you have not placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will know for certain that everything is bad for you. Beloved, this morning we're going to celebrate communion, right? And I say celebrate. I say celebrate because that's what it is for the Christian. We reflect again on the reality every time we take this, that Jesus Christ gave up His life, His blood, as Terry said, as a substitutionary sacrifice for every man, woman, or child that would place their faith in Him, that their sins might be wiped away so that they would never, ever have to face the horrific and terrifying and eternal wrath of God against them. For Christ Himself 
took it upon himself in their place. That's what we celebrate when we come together. We take a little piece of bread that represents his body given for us. We take a cup of juice that Jesus says represents his blood, his life, his death on our behalf. That we might be set free in Christ, forgiven, past, present, and every future sin. That's why we celebrate. That's why it is a celebration. Beloved, if you're here and you don't, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your, as your Savior, you don't know that, you don't really have that relationship or you're not sure, then this meal should terrify you actually. Because it is a reminder that it is only through Jesus Christ that we are made right with God. But at the same time, that terror should send you running to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because He offers His salvation freely and to all if they will simply believe, if they'll simply place their faith in Him. Let me read the text that we, we look at when we take this communion meal. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23-26. We're very familiar with it. We read it almost every time. Paul says there, this is why we do it. Paul, the Apostle Paul, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup, and after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Now, stop. Just leave that up there. You proclaim, I've said this before, but I I just think it's important to emphasize, we don't normally like to talk about death. Do we? We don't like to talk about it. There's a, a funeral home that's going in on... Easter, at a wander, or something like that. They're trying to put a funeral home over there, and there's people protesting it because they don't want a funeral home in their neighborhood because they don't want to have to think about what a funeral home means. They don't want that pain, right? We don't like it. And yet, every time we take this meal, that's exactly what we're doing. We're making it loud and clear. We're proclaiming, we're talking about not death in general, but the death of the one the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Why are, are we weird? Are we perverted in some way, like twisted? Why would we be so focused on death? Because it's this very death, beloved, that gave us life. That gave us life. That's why we celebrate it. In a moment, the elements will be passed out. I ask that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you should partake. This is your celebration. If you're not, it's not for you. Please don't partake. But we would love to talk to you about Becoming a believer in Jesus Christ, we'd love to to talk to you about how that works and what that means. So please, let us know that if you're having concerns there. Also wait till the end because we share together at the very end. Right now, I'm just going to go ahead and pray for our communion, for our elements. Let me pray. Join me. Father in heaven, I, I thank you, Father, for just the, the celebration that this this is, as we, as we come together as the body of Christ, as the redeemed, uh, not assuming that everyone here is, is yours, uh, because they have yet maybe to place their faith in Christ as their Lord and Savior, put all their hope in Him alone. They, 
They don't follow Christ, not really. They may be here, but their heart is not here. Their heart is not with you. It's somewhere else. But Father, for us who you have redeemed, this is a, a reason to celebrate, to rejoice. And, and so we do this on a, a recurring basis to remember our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who gave his life on our behalf that we may never, ever come under your wrath. Ever. There is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. And we celebrate that this morning. We celebrate his death for by his death we have been given eternal life. And yet, Father, there are those here I know that certainly they can't celebrate this meal. Not really, not authentically. So, Lord, I I pray that you would sovereignly and powerfully through your Spirit convict them even now, Lord. Convict them even now. That they, in their heart, in their mind, would, would recognize that they're lost. They are flat out lost. That they right now are under your wrath because they haven't, they haven't been rescued by the Savior. They've never gone to Him. Not really. They may know about Him. They've been exposed to Him. Maybe they've read about Him. But He is not their Lord. He is not their Savior. And Father, I pray that You would work even now that they would change that by placing their faith, by crying out to Him and placing their faith and hope in Him. Just saying, I am a sinner. Just admitting that they are a sinner and that they are guilty as sinners before You and deserving of Your very wrath. For You are just and righteous to punish them. That they would recognize that. And Father, they would they would believe that Christ is the solution to their problem. That He is the perfect sacrifice for their sins. That He alone can make them right with God. And Father, I pray that they would would flee to the cross in a sense. They would go there and find their peace there. Lord, I pray that would happen even now in their heart. Just crying out to the Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I am guilty. And I believe You are my Savior. Lord, save me and come into my heart even now. Father, I pray. I plead that some here, some one, one, maybe more in their heart right now would cry out to You in this way and be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord according to Your Word, they shall be saved. Father, help us to reflect on the goodness of our salvation as we partake in this meal even now so it truly will be a celebration in every way. Bless the elements to our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen.